All right, well, good morning. My name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to worship um, with you this morning. I want to wish mothers out there a happy Mother's Day. Thankful for the mothers, the three mothers that are in my life, and how God has used them to sanctify me in various ways. And um, yeah, so happy, happy Mother's Day. Um, real quick announcement before we dive into today's message. I think this, I'm not sure if it's in the bulletin or not, but wanted to make you aware of an important thing that's kind of going on in the life of Parkview. A couple weeks ago, we, met, we launched kind of the 2020 vision campaign um, about what it looks like over the next couple of years for Parkview to be one church across not just two locations, but also three as we add um, a campus in North Liberty with a merger partnership through um, alongside of Heartland Church. Um, part of that has to do with facilities. It has to do with um, where we worship and how we're reaching this, this place. And um, part of that has to do with what facilities. And so obviously we, we gather here on Sunday mornings and there's an, an opportunity that has opened, us for, uh, opened up for us to purchase this space. Currently we rent it from Southgate. We've run Faith Academy, the spot programming, out of here for the last... Um, 15-ish years um, leasing from Southgate and the opportunity is open for us to purchase this space. It's a big deal. Leadership feels like this would be a wise. We see ourselves here. It's right where we want to be. We give us more space to meet the needs of East Campus, um, give us some visibility frontage on Highway 6, as well as being able to build out um, and go K through 6 with Faith Academy. So it would really be, from a space side, it would meet both of those needs. Um, so a couple things that you need to know of. First of all is there's been lots of discussion. We've tried to get out information that we're aware of, invite questions, provide answers. We've done that through listening posts here and at Central Campus. Next week at 8.15, I know it's early, but they did schedule this so that if anybody from East wanted to be there, there's going to be a forum. Um, and one piece that I, I personally think is maybe missing, you know, there's maybe 200 of us that, that meet here and call Parkview East our home. And one piece I think that's missing, at least at Central Campus, is the folks where, where facilities are concerned, that it most impacts, like their voices aren't being heard over there when they have discussions. And, and not, you know, good or bad. I mean, leadership's doing a really good job, but it's you all that this is going to impact, you know, the, the greatest, right? Um, and so I think it'd be really helpful when they, when they have a discussion next week on 8.15, if at 8.15 on Sunday morning, as many of you who could be there who are members, um, it would be great just so that they can hear, I think, from our own voices, the excitement, the potential, and the opportunity. Um, I, many people just, just they, they've never been here, and so they don't realize what, it, what Sunday morning worship looks like, you know, um, the backdoor entrance, the lack of visibility, the folding chairs we set up and tear down every week, and um, they just don't realize that. And so it'd be great if you're able to be there. Also on June 4th is when we're actually going to vote for that, a congregation vote. And I believe, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they need 80% of the membership to approve that um, to go forward. And so that's going to happen on June 4th, okay? So if you have more questions about that, for me, just the big things are next week, 8.15, Sunday at Central Campus. You can get there, be there for an hour, and then maybe grab breakfast and come over here afterwards for worship. Um, and then June 4th is the congregational meeting where they'll actually be voting. If you can't make the June 4th, you can vote uh, by proxy, by the appropriate channels, I'm sure. So, um, so that being said, it's really the one big kind of announcement. This week is exciting, not just because it's, it's really great timing. We're, you know, it's Mother's Day, but we are starting uh, as a church walking through a new book of the Bible, and it's the book of Ruth. And so one of the things that we do here that's a little different at East is I really encourage you to bring a copy of God's Word, either your phone or the Bible. If you do not have that, um, there's a stand back there, and you can just raise your hand, and somebody can come around and hand you a Bible. Um, if you don't have it and you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and somebody will drop one off. But um, the words won't be on the screen, and we're just going to be familiar 
familiar with how to use our Bible, okay? Um, and so this week, um, I'm really excited for the book of Ruth um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're familiar with this story, it is a beautiful, beautiful story. It is an awesome story. Last couple of weeks, as I have been reading it um, every week, just throughout, there's four chapters. It's short. It's tucked back in the Old Testament. It can easily be missed, but it is a beautiful story. As you look at the characters and the way these characters are developed throughout this story, what's amazing to me, one of the things that kind of just stood out to me this week is how, how you look at these characters, and the truth is you should be able to see, and some of these characters, a large degree, represent you. And you should be able to see yourself in these characters, and not just who you are and where you are. There's also characters in there that, that really should show you where you want to be. Okay, and so it's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's a theological story. As we read this, um, the faithfulness of God just comes to the fore. The sovereignty of God, his providence, um, is, is a theme that is woven throughout this story. It's a beautiful story. It's a theological story. But it's also, and this is one of the reasons, again, why I'm so excited to read it, is because it's also a meaningful story. It's a meaningful story. Although it was written years and years ago, the truths that are tucked in this story have deep, significant meaning and implications for you today. The truths that we, we will uncover as we walk through this story, chapter by chapter, week by week, actually provides us instruction and encouragement for how we should live and conduct our lives today. It has wonderful, wonderful meaning. And that's really what my prayer is, is that we can pull these truths out and we can hide them in our hearts and they will provide us encouragement as we navigate life. And Lord knows, if you've done much living, you will need encouragement, all right? So I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter one. It follows the book of Judges. It's a small, small book. Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole first chapter, and then we will pray and get into it. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Paphrites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons. And her husband. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return to the country from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord <clears throat> had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. They will go with, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. 
for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father God, Lord... Just pray as we look at your word this morning, Father, I pray that your spirit would be in this place, that it would um, encourage the hearts of your saints, Father. Lord, and I just pray that truth would be proclaimed. Lord, you know exactly the folks that are sitting in this room, and, and you know exactly what's going on in each of their hearts, Lord, and I just pray that you would apply your glorious word to them at this moment. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was one of the most influential presidents of our country's history. He was unlike any other president for a number of reasons. First of all, he was the longest serving president, he served from 32 until 1945. He really came on the scene in the middle of the Great Depression and led the country out of the Depression through World War II. He was known for many of his great social, well, you could say what you want to say, but his social reforms, right? Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum of what you think about his policies or his politics, you cannot deny his tremendous ability as a leader, a man who could lead well. However, FDR is not only known because of his many accomplishments as a president, but also for his significant challenges that he faced in life. In fact, many who study his life can really see his rise in politics come as a result of the way he faced challenges that emerged in his life. Before he became president in 1921, Roosevelt was enjoying some vacation time with his family. They went sailing, spent the afternoon sailing. Then they went, took a swim in a pond on their way back to their cabin. And then when we got back to the cabin, he felt kind of sick and weak, and, and he laid down in his bed. And that would be the last time that, that FDR would ever walk without help. 
right? From then, he was diagnosed with polio at the time. And, and really, it was something that he suffered greatly in his life and kept from the public eye for a long period of time. Back then, if you had a disability, you just weren't recognized, maybe in the same way you are today. James Tobin, author of The Man He Became, How FDR Defied Polio to Win the Presidency, believes that Roosevelt's disability is what helped him to be elected and gave him more empathy for the common man. Tobin claims that FDR had a kind of passion of people who were suffering that he couldn't have had if he did not know what it meant to suffer himself. It can be said that it was in the crucible of suffering that forged the character of FDR and really put him out to be the great president that many believe he was. FDR's life, despite his affluent upbringing and his rise to prominence and power, was not immune from the struggle. Wasn't immune from the struggle. In fact, he knew the struggle well. And my guess is that there are many of you who are here today who know that to live is to struggle. We've talked about it before. To live life to some degree, is to know what it means to suffer and to struggle. And a question that often we find ourselves asking in the face of this struggle and of this suffering is how should we respond? How do we look at our life, the struggle that we may see in our life, the suffering that appears in our life, and how do we bring meaning? How do we find any sort of meaning out of this struggle? From a philosophical standpoint, oftentimes that question can keep people from God. But from a practical perspective, not just how do we bring meaning to life through suffering, but practically speaking, how do I respond to it? How do I live my life in light of it? Is I guarantee a question that if you're not asking right now, some of you are asking that question right now, that if you're not asking it now, you may have asked it in the past, and there's going to be a day when you will ask it in the future. How do we deal with suffering that exists in our life? FDR really serves, again, regardless of what you think about his politics, as a great example of a really wonderful response to suffering. What we see in the first chapter, the book of Ruth, is that there is a woman's life that is in complete and total ruin. In the first chapter, hopefully you've seen suffering just leaps off the pages. And so really this morning, all of chapter one answers this question. How do you respond to suffering in your life? Chapter 1 breaks down really nicely. Three main points. The first thing you see is, is a life in ruin. The next thing we'll see is how you respond to that ruin. And the last thing we'll see is how you return out of that ruin. So first is just the life of ruin. In verse 1, we see that in the days when the judges ruled. The first verse tells us that this is a story that is tucked into the era of the judges. And if you remember, um, it was through Joshua's leadership 
that eventually, that essentially Israel was brought into the land of Canaan, given the promised land. And throughout Joshua's leadership, you see the conquest of the land, the division of the land, and the settling of God's people in the land. And, and when they were to do this, they had strict God told them to take the foreigners and, and, and have them removed from the land and set up my people and have them be a display of God's holiness for other nations to see and to aspire to. It was conquered, it was divided, and it was settled. And then throughout the book of Judges, it, what we see is that God's people failed to do what God had commanded them to do. Right? So from the book of Judges goes from the end of Joshua until the beginning of the monarchy, the, the institution of God's king, kingship through David. And we see that the book of Judges shows us that God's people failed to keep their end of the covenant. Due to a lack of faith and blatant disobedience, they failed to finish the conquest. They left pockets of Canaanites in the land. They, they didn't push them out, and as a result, those pockets of Canaanites began to regroup. They began to war against God's people and eventually influence God's people such to the point that God's people began to worship foreign gods. They, they weren't faithful. They failed to be faithful to their end of the agreement. Eventually, Israel's complacency and their tolerance would become apostasy. They abandoned God and worshiped foreign gods. Judges 21, the last verse in the book of Judges, sets the scene well. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the historical setting for our story. The book of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. If we were to look at the time of Judges from the end of Joshua to the beginning of David, what Ruth does is it focuses, it zooms in on one particular family. And what is so awesome about the book of Ruth, what is so awesome about this story, is there's, we're told very little about these people. These are not prominent leaders in the land of Israel necessarily. They're everyday ordinary people. And what it shows us is that God is concerned with your life. He is concerned with everyday, ordinary details of your life and of my life. Now, it's not just bad enough that Ruth's story takes place during a time of ruin, but we see specifically that Naomi's life is falling apart at the seams. The social chaos isn't enough. God's people living with violence and anarchy on a regular basis wasn't enough. Now they face another threat, the threat of famine. They weren't just living in fear. Now they were living with hunger, like a real practical need that they were reminded of every single day. Things were bad. The family we are introduced in the first five verses, they are from the town of Bethlehem. To show you just how bad it is, the name Bethlehem is the house of bread. So in the house of bread, there ain't no bread, all right? Could, could you imagine going to Jimmy Jack's just down the road? I mean, this is a terrible scene. I don't even want to paint this picture. But imagine going to Jimmy Jack's, barbecue, Mother's Day, a special day, right? Go to Jimmy Jack's and get some ribs, okay? Sounds like a fantastic idea, right? Or Village Inn to get some pie, okay? And Jimmy Jack's comes out and says, hey, I hate to break it to you. We ain't got no ribs. 
You know what I mean? I, it's terrible. The, the suffering, all right? The suffering you would endure. Village Inn, there's no pie. It's like this is, this is not how this works, right? So Bethlehem, the house of bread, there ain't no bread. And in just the first verse of the book, we are given a picture of the immense suffering that God's people, one particular family, faces. And in response to the famine and search for food, Elimelech does what I think many would choose to do. He, he packs up his family and he leaves the promised land. He packs up his family and he leaves. Now, Elimelech's name was meant my God is king. And he appears in this moment to turn his back on his king. And, and quite honestly, there's a, there's a lesson here for dads. In search for provision and security and maybe safety and comfort, Elimelech turns his back on God and leads his family further away from God. Further away from God. It's really a tragic scene. Now, to give you a picture again of how terrible this scene is, they leave the town, you know, the house of bread, and they go to Moab. All right, Moab was a, there were people that had descended from Lot from an incestuous relationship that happened after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. God had specifically this incestuous relationship that came from Lot and his daughter that eventually would, would birth the nation, this Moabite people, right? And as a response, listen to what God says in Deuteronomy. Make sure that's Deuteronomy chapter 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor, from Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because of the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Does God want his people messing around with Moabites? No. He makes it very, very clear. Specifically, why? Because when they were leading, when they're in the wilderness, going out of Egypt into the promised land, this king, Balak, sent the prophet, this diviner, Balaam, to, to curse God's people. And if you remember the story, every time he, his mouth opened to curse God's people, God would turn that, that curse into a blessing. Right, And he specifically says, this is amazing, he specifically says, don't go there because they did not extend to you hospitality. In Deuteronomy 23, he says, don't play around with the Moabites. Why? Because they won't give you any bread. All right? So Elimelech leaves the house of bread to go to a country that has historically refused to share their bread. I mean, just thinking of the wisdom or the lack thereof in this choice, all right? Like he is leading them away from the faithfulness, from the wonderful kindness and goodness of God to a foreign land. And what happens as a result? Does the suffering stop? No. It just gets worse. It just gets worse. His 
sons would eventually marry Moabite women. They take them as their wives. And then sons, then Elimelech dies and Malon and Kilion, they die. And the opening scene comes to a close. In just these five verses, we are left with Naomi and her two barren daughters-in-law in a foreign land. And in just five verses, we have an overwhelming sense of the utter desperation, suffering, nearly complete ruin that exists in their lives. It's a pretty bleak scene. Five verses, it's pretty bleak, right? It's, it's hard to look for much hope in these five verses. Now, some of you, even sitting here today, I would bet can relate to maybe how Naomi and her daughters-in-law felt. Maybe not now, but maybe at some point in your life can look and see moments where it seems as though there's no bread. That maybe God is not answering your cry. Maybe it's sickness. It could be loss. It could be grief. It could be tragedy. It could be trauma. But all of us, to some degree, can relate to Naomi. And if you can't now, I guarantee you there's people in your life right now that are going through it that can. And this question, how is Naomi so, I mean, we can look at her and say, well, who can you blame her for some of the choices, for her bitterness that creeps in? Can you blame her? Right? Because many of us can relate to what she is enduring, what she is going through. There was an article recently just in the Washington Post, and it talked about the the, the, the tremendous amount of loneliness that people in this country feel. At an age when connectivity is at the highest, social media is a tool that everybody is on and using, people are feeling lonelier than they ever have before. They did a survey recently that came out, and it showed that actually the loneliest generation, the loneliest generation are those between the ages of 18 and 22. Even older than the elderly. And the next loneliest generation are the millennials on up through age 37. Next loneliest generation. Loneliness is, is, is integral right now in our society. It is, it is a cultural phenomenon that we cannot ignore. And I would bet many of you can relate to and identify. There are so many different ways that through our life we experience maybe even just a taste of what Naomi knows in these first five verses. Suffering. You know, we go to Belize, one of the favorite things that we do is we go to this waterfall. And at the waterfall, uh, my, when we first went, first time we went, uh, my wife was telling me about it. And we're like, okay, that's good. Sounds great. And I was expecting like an American experience. Like you get in the car, you drive up to the waterfall, you park the car, waterfall, okay? It didn't work like that. <laughs> didn't work like that, okay? Instead, what happened was we parked the car like on the side of a road and there was a little sign that said waterfall this way. Then we got out and we began to walk and we would walk through the jungle and the path would be hard and it would be hilly. And she was, you know, probably pregnant at the time. I think we've been there three times and every time we seem to be on this road, she's pregnant. Okay, so there she is like walking up this hill. There's rocks on the ground. There's, you know, bugs that you're like slapping at trying to get off you. It's in the heat of the day and you walk for, I don't know, maybe at least a mile. You're walking down this path, right? And it's not easy. It is not easy. You're walking on it because you know at the end there is a waterfall and it's going to be cool and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be relaxing. It's going to be awesome. But to get to the waterfall, you have to be on the path and the path 
is not easy, right? Eventually, you get closer and you begin to hear the waves crashing against the rocks. You can, you can feel the coolness in the air. And then the jungle kind of peels away. And there you see this beautiful, glorious waterfall. It's cool. It's refreshing. It's everything that it had promised to be. But to get there, you first have to endure the struggle of the path. And in a lot of ways, it's a picture of what life is like. It's a picture of what life is like. Nobody, David Brooks in his book, A Road to Character, talks about, about just the way our character is shaped and the way our character is formed. And nobody sets out in life and looks at the path and says, that's what I'm after. I want that suffering. I want that struggle. I want those rocks. I want those bugs. Nobody says, I want that, right? But they're looking towards the end of what lies beneath. And no matter what stage of life you're in, you see some degree of whether you call it happiness or joy or something that promises a better life is at the end of the path. No matter where you're at, tomorrow is always better. But when you look back and you think about the way your life is marked, a lot of times you think about those rocks on the path. It is the crucible by which your character is formed, right? And it is so true. Some of you, that path, honestly, can be a little rockier than it is for other people. And it can be tempting to look at your path, right, and to look at somebody else's path and maybe to be like, why me? Why is my path so hilly? Why is my path so rocky? And when you do that, you're taking your eyes off the waterfall. And it can be easy to let bitterness creep in, resentment creep in, not just towards other people, but ultimately you can see yourself doing what Naomi did, growing bitter, not towards one another, but towards God himself, right? Luckily, as we continue on through this book, we see that God's loving kindness, his faithfulness to Naomi is present with her even on the path problem in chapter one is she didn't see it. She can't see it, right? So as you move on to the next section, you see, okay, well, how are you to respond to this path, this hard, rocky, hilly path? How do you respond? And what we see in chapter one is there's really two different ways you can respond. First is the way Naomi responds, okay? First is how Naomi responds. The first thing that she does that we see is that she tries to distance herself from loving kindness of others. So her life is difficult, and I do not want to minimize the tragedy that is in her life or that may be in yours today. Okay? But the first thing she, we, that I just, a couple of observations, observations about how she responds. First, she, she distanced herself from the loving kindness of other people. All right? Naomi tries to get Ruth and Orpah to go back. Now, there's some debate. Now, what I love about this story is there's lots that we just don't know. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. We don't know how Ruth became, uh, you know, desired to become one of God's people. We don't know, okay? And I don't want to read in a whole lot to text and make some, some, some observations that may not be there. I'm just going to focus on what's there. And Naomi tries to get Ruth and Orpah to go back. Some would say this is a demonstration maybe of just being polite, maybe being kind, maybe extending love and sacrifice. Go back, you know? Like that's a nice thing to do. I don't think so. I think she is a broken down, a, a woman who knows the hurts and pains of life all too well and what she is trying to do. God has brought some loving, kind women into her, and you know what she's doing? She's trying to get them away. She is pushing them away, trying to get them to go back. And, and I think 
this reflects a propensity that we have, that humans have, that when we are hurting, when we are broken down, a propensity towards isolation, away from biblical community and towards individuality, towards isolation. In our moments of suffering, of grief, loss, and pain, if we are not careful, we can often treat We can often retreat into isolation away from others, even from the community of God. We can push people away, often those who love us the most. That's what she's doing, right? She she is bitter, and you know what? She wants to be bitter. She wants to be bitter. So she pushes God's loving and kindness and the formness of other people away from her. Second thing that we notice is that she is actually blind to not just the loving kindness of other people, but also the loving kindness of God himself. See, Naomi's theology is not half bad, okay? She understands that God is almighty. He is in complete and total control. She knows that. He is sovereign over everything. She recognized that. She's got good theology where that's concerned. She understands that her circumstances even are not outside of the sovereign God's control, right? That he is, he is permitted for whatever reason for these events to unfold and unravel in her life for whatever reason. She affirms his sovereignty. She even acknowledges that God is capable of dis- demonstrating his loving kindness when she talks to Ruth and Orpah. She, she knows that God is able to extend this, right? She affirms the sovereignty of God in her life, but not his goodness, not his goodness. If there is one single word that describes her response toward the suffering in her life, she says it over and over. It's bitter, and that's who she is. She cannot see the hesed, the word here for the loving kindness of God. She makes no mention. She talks about the loving kindness that she sees demonstrated through Orpah and Ruth, but she makes no reference to the loving kindness of God. She cannot see through the, this crucible, through this path, she cannot see the rays of God's grace shining through the jungle. She doesn't see it. She does not see it. You can even go on and look at, okay, by the time the story unravels, she sees her life as being completely empty, right? But she's not completely empty, and she's not completely alone. But she has a hard time even seeing it. The last thing is that she is a selective, overly nostalgic understanding of the past, all right? When she thinks back, all she thinks of is the horrible things that have happened to her, right? But... She has this skewed version of history. She doesn't remember the whole reason they left Bethlehem. Was it because they were full and everything was fine and dandy? It was because there was no food, right? She is selectively choosing what to remember and basing her response on those memories. Now, this is often how we respond as well to suffering to ruin in our lives we cannot read this first chapter of Ruth and not help but have our hearts go out to this woman her world has come crashing down around her pain and suffering she has endured is real it is heavy it cannot be denied however it is clear in examining her response to this pain that Naomi is wrestling with being ruled by her circumstances not by being ruled by the Lord of her circumstances. And those are two very different things. Naomi sees herself ultimately just as a victim, 
of her unfortunate circumstances that have crept into her life. Not as an instrument that's being forged and developed by the very hand of God. Now there's another response to suffering that we see. And that's the way Ruth responds. These beautiful verses in verse 16, 17, oftentimes you might hear these quoted at a wedding. But Ruth said to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Here is a picture of how we should try to respond to suffering in our life. Now, perhaps Naomi's loss, her suffering was greater. Her road, her path towards the waterfall might have been more rocky, more hilly, more sweat, more bugs. Maybe there was an alligator or a snake jumping at her, right? Her, Naomi's path was, was by far more difficult. But Ruth suffered too. Ruth suffered too. Ruth lost her husband. She had no children to call her own. Ruth, I mean, just to put it blatantly, she is, all she has in life is this bitter old Naomi, all right? Her mother-in-law. I mean, to me, I'm almost like, she might even have it worse. She's stuck with her mother-in-law, and she's bitter. Like, oh, this doesn't sound good. I love my mother-in-law. She's fantastic. But this is not a pleasant experience for Ruth either. And her response is night and day from Naomi's. She has tasted in a very, very real way the bitterness of life. She lost her husband, lost um, where she is, her family. We don't know exactly where she's coming from. Her response is nothing short of remarkable. Adele Berlin puts it like this. What's so amazing is how, how, how Ruth is so quick to call Naomi's people her people. Listen to this. The ancient world there were, had no mechanism for religious conversion or to a change in citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood defined one's ethnic identity. And this could no more be changed than the color of one's skin. Who she was. She was a Moabite woman. This is like saying, I'm, not, I'm no longer white. Right? Some people might try to do that, but it just doesn't work out. Okay? A Moabite was always a Moabite. Indeed, Ruth will be referred throughout the story as a Moabitess. But in Ruth's perspective, she is becoming an Israelite. That's what's happening. Ruth seems to believe that the God of Israel accepted people regardless of where they came from, regardless of their background or their baggage. God of Israel was ready to accept her, and she knew it. She wouldn't have journeyed on this way. She wouldn't have forsaken everything, given up everything that she knew to be home and to be life, and go towards a God if she did not have confidence that the God of Naomi would accept her, regardless of her background, regardless of of her baggage. She had full faith that God was going to accept her. Somehow in her past, whether it was through her marriage, through Naomi herself, she had this amazing picture of who Yahweh was. And she compared God of Israel, the God of the Bible, to all the other gods in the land. And she knew this was the God, who, the only God who was worth enduring everything for, giving up everything for. And what was her response? Bible says she clung to Naomi. This is a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture. As Naomi pushes her away, as Naomi tries to retreat into isolation, retreat into just being alone, Na Ruth 
isn't having it. She will not allow it to happen. And she clings to Naomi. Ultimately, what Ruth understands, what Ruth believes, is that it is not just best for Ruth to be clinging to Naomi and best for Ruth to be clinging to Naomi's God. It's also best for Naomi. It's best for Naomi as she tries to push her away. Ruth ain't going, right? She is with Naomi till the end, even to the end. I mean, even death, she says, isn't going to part them. This is even a stronger commitment than people make in marriage. This is a significant, significant thing. She is not leaving. And this is exactly what God talks about when he talks about how we are to respond to his loving kindness. In Deuteronomy 10, 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Joshua 23, 8. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. That's what ultimately what Ruth is doing is what God calls us to do. When life gets hard, when, when we see rocks on the road and turns in the path, when sweat is coming down, when suffering creeps in, how does he want you to respond? How does he want me to respond? He wants us to cling to him and each other. Ultimately, if we have any hope in this world to see that waterfall, if we are not willing to cling to God, to cling to God's people, there's a good chance those cold waves will never come splashing on our face. God is a faithful God. He puts those rocks in our path to shape us, to endure us. It's like he's stripping away the layers and revealing what's at the very bottom of who we are. And how we respond in those moments are what makes us who we are. What does he want from you? Even just this morning, he wants you to cling to him and cling to one another. I'm just being honest. You cannot cling to one another if you do not know one another. There is a deep knowledge that Ruth has of Naomi that says this is a woman worth clinging to. And it is impossible to know one another if all you do is show up here on a Sunday morning for one hour. Not just for you, but for the people you might be sitting next to. Like there are serious hurts in this room right now. There is serious, serious pain. And if we want to step towards one another and resemble, reflect this posture of clinging to each other, of clinging to a faithful, loving God, we cannot do that if we don't know each other and if we don't know God. It's honestly, people, it takes more than just one hour on a Sunday morning. I mean, the reason why I'm just, I don't always just throw up words on the screen is because I want you, I want us to be people who have our noses in this book on a regular basis, right? This is our hope. This is what gives us strength. And again, your, rock, your, your path might not be rocking now. Maybe things are okay, right? But the minute, minute pebbles start showing up on that path, if there's no foundation, if there's nothing to turn to, if there's no one to turn to, I mean, I've seen it time and time again. People turn from. They, they, they run away from God. And we can't let that happen for each other and for you. The last thing that we see is this, not really sure what to do with it. it, it it's a hard scene where she returns back to Bethlehem. 
right? And again, she talks about how you know, the, the whole town is stirring because of how she has come back, right? She, she was gone for 10 years, and now she's back. Is this Naomi? Where's Elimelech? Where's Malon? Where's Kilion? Who, who are these Moabitess women that she is walking around with? What is the deal? Like, she is a mourning, grieving widow. And when they, they ask her, I mean, to me, I, I think this is, what an awesome opportunity to put God's glorious, loving kindness on display. But I think when we do that, we minimize what real pain and suffering is like. It's not always easy to do that. She comes back and she says, no, my name is not Naomi. It's not pleasant. My name is Mara, for I am I'm bitter, right? I'm bitter. I am broken down. I am beaten up. I went away full. Again, her recollection is not quite accurate. She went away hungry, okay? She was hungry when she went away. And she says, I came back empty. Well, again, she's not empty. Why is she not empty? Because Ruth is clinging to her. Ruth will not let her be empty, even when she can't see it. Even when she is trying to pry her daughter-in-law off of her, Ruth is clinging. What a picture. What a picture. So as chapter 1 comes to a close, it's this, this really interesting picture of a, two women who are on the same journey, who are on the same path, who are worshiping the same God, but are having very different responses to the suffering they are enduring. One bitter, broken. One clinging and faithful. And really, I, mean, I think what I see when I look at that picture is I see me, and I see who I want to be. I see me, and I see who God wants me to be, right? And, and, and to some degree, you should be able to look into each of these women's lives, and you should be able to see yourself. Bitter at times, maybe, but not alone. Broken, not destroyed, right? Hopeless and hopeful at the same exact time. You can't do it alone, and you can't do it if you don't return home, right? You got to go home. Maybe some of you are even here today and have turned your back on God, and you're here right now because your mama wants you here, right? (laughs) Just saying, I don't know. I don't know why you're here, but maybe you're here because your mama wants you here. That's That's an admirable reason to be here. There's a better reason to be here, right? Because God is a faithful, loving God, and he wants you to return home. In this passage, seven times the same word is used, return, 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 right? In some degree, we see this happen in Ruth's life. She repents. She converts. She, she becomes a follower of Yahweh. And in Naomi's life, we see repentance and the fact that she has returned home. So my question simply to you is how do you respond? When life is not easy... When the wind begins to blow and the waves begin to crash against the ship, when the path is rocky, can you hear the waterfall in the distance? Have you forgotten how that cool breeze feels? And are you alone? How do you respond when life is at its hardest? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you um, just for this day. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for this book. And for this wonderful picture that you have given us of what not just our faithfulness and loving kindness should look like, Lord, but even greater, what your 
faithfulness and loving kindness looks like, Lord. I pray that you would allow us just the grace of being able to see your hand on us, even in life's most difficult moments, Lord. I pray that your presence would be one we cannot deny. Your goodness would be one that we would not try to hide, Lord. And your people would be such that we would not try to push away, Father. Lord, I thank you that your hand is on us, that your spirit, you offer your spirit to work in us, Father. And Lord, I just pray that you would um, just use us, one another, to sharpen each other, Father, and to surrender our lives to you and ultimately, Lord, to return home. We ask these things in your name. Amen.